Hello, welcome to another episode of Unpacking Neuroqueerness. Today I have another special guest on the podcast, Iris Warchel, uh, an autistic physical therapist. Um, uh, they're also on Instagram uh, at Autistic Physical Therapist um, on uh, handle. And uh, yeah, and anyways, um, welcome, Iris. Hi, George. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, thank you for coming on. Um, so my first question for you today, uh, well, first I'm going to ask a little bit about yourself and then I'm going to ask a little bit about your work as a physical therapist. But first I wanted to ask you uh, a little bit about yourself and when and how you discovered that you were autistic. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I am a physical therapist and I practice in an outpatient setting where I do a lot of work supporting people who are managing chronic pain and pelvic health concerns as well as um, movement disorders and um, you know that includes things like Parkinson's or dystonias um, and I mentioned this because a lot of these conditions are some of the health conditions that we as autistic people are uh, more likely than the general population to experience. So I had been working in this field for some time and then I, you know, as I was going along in my career, which I love, I also was experiencing um, what I now know to be autistic burnout because I did not have my needs well met. Um, I wasn't setting up my environment and, um, you know, setting up a rhythm or pace um, for my days and weeks that worked well for me. And, you know, so that's a piece of my story. Um, I then wound up having a child and somewhere along the way, my child wound up, wound up receiving an autism diagnosis. And very shortly after that, I recognized, uh, you know, hey, that's me too. Um, you know, we're a big autistic family and um, I think that led me to, uh, you know, probably more quickly than some parents do, um, you know, seek out the voices and perspectives of the autistic community because I, you know, was very eager to learn, um, you know, both how you know, how to be supporting my child and how to be better supporting myself and um, learning about myself and my needs. So, you know, uh, all that was happening for a while. And then I wound up, um, you know, pretty soon realizing after that, that in, you know, in my training as a physical therapist, the education that I had received around autism and supporting autistic patients was very minimal and very outdated and um, in many cases um, incomplete and or incorrect yeah. and not, um, you know, not based on the perspectives of the autistic community. 
No, and um, like I said, autistic people are more likely than average to experience a lot of the health conditions that physical therapists support people for. So it's just, you know, I realize it's just critical for the physical therapy profession to start to learn about autism um, from the perspective of the autistic community. And a couple of years ago, I set out to try and figure out what I can do to make that happen. Yeah, no, fantastic. I think that's that's really great because it's definitely um, very needed to change the perspective and change the narrative. Um, so that it's one of the reasons that I'm glad I was able to have you on today because I think, you know, the more there also needs to be more awareness from people that there are autistic physical therapists, there are autistic therapists, autistic speech therapists, um, because I it's I feel like unfortunately because of the narrative and like the pathology paradigm and how everything is so pathologized still I feel like when you talk about a physical therapist or a psychotherapist or a speech therapist people don't automatically think of someone that's autistic um being you know being a therapist and and also and because of that because I feel like there's still a lot of therapists that don't have the perspective not only are they not it's not that they're not disabled but it's that they don't have the perspective of the disability community and then it ends up being very biased so anyways i'm i'm yeah yeah uh yeah, right absolutely and i think that i uh, something something that you just said there um you know, uh, made me want to highlight that, you know, at least within my profession, there are a lot of other autistic clinicians that I have, um, you know, had the, uh, had the good fortune to um, connect with over the last year or two. And we, you know, we in our profession, just like in all the healthcare or, you know, helping professions, um, you know, we have these systems uh, where professionals do not feel safe um, disclosing their disability, um, disclosing their neurotype. And, uh, you know, this is just like, uh, that's one huge piece of it, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um many uh many people can't uh it, they don't feel safe disclosing so then then people yeah it ends up yeah the whole right there, right there's just this cycle of stigmatization that continues yeah exactly yeah. um what so um what was it like disclosing your neurodivergence to your friends and family and was was there like did you have to deal with like denial or microaggressions or what were they pretty like open and understanding yeah that's a good question because i think um 
you know, for each of us in our lives, there are so many different um, other people and groups of people that we interact with. And, uh, you know, for, I think for anyone who uh, is a late identified neurodivergent person that um, it's always going to be this process of, and, you know, on a case by case basis, considering how you're going to have those conversations and if you're going to have those conversations, right. Um, I, you know, personally within um, my family, those people who are closest to me, then I think the uh, conversations that I've had with folks have been pretty straightforward, um, you know, along the lines of, oh, well, you know, my child had received this diagnosis, and um, so then, you know, I've been learning about what this means, and that, you know, these are all traits that I share, too, and people have been like, yeah, um, <laughs> so, you know, nothing, uh, nothing particularly um, to write home about regarding any of those conversations. Um, I, I think I'm really lucky to have a, you know, to have within my family a um, very supportive and open-minded group of people. Um, but, you know, in, in terms of, uh, you know, these other areas in our life where we might choose to disclose or not disclose, you know, certainly since I've started doing advocacy work and I've been working on, you know, implementing trainings for other professionals in which I'm, you know, uh, I'm, you know, very explicitly including this information that I am an autistic person and I bring that perspective and I bring, um, oh, my cat's here. Hi, cat. This is Wiley. Wiley. Um, <laughs> So, you know, I also bring the experience of being uh, regularly in conversation with the autistic self-advocacy community and the disability community more generally, um, you know, because that's very important to the work that I'm doing there. Um, I think it's, anyways, uh, what, we're getting back to the original question. Um, Within the physical therapy community, I think that the responses that I've gotten have been generally positive. Um, I think mostly because I'm bringing information that people did not, um, you know, they haven't even considered that they might need. And um, uh, that's... Yeah, yeah I, th I think that's, uh, I don't know, I was expecting to um, potentially experience a little bit more stigma um, amongst colleagues, but I think um, certainly anyone who has um, had any negative thoughts about anything that I've been doing professionally there certainly hasn't um, <laughs> openly expressed them to me. Well, that's, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's good. That's good because uh, I know that a lot of times um, a lot of us have to deal with, I mean, I've been generally fortunate as well that most of my 
you know, cl close circles of, of friends and family have been, like, understanding and listening to my perspective and everything, but I know that a, a lot of times a lot of us have to deal with, like, being gaslit or, um, you know, people right. not believing us because we don't fit the stereotypical idea of the presentation they think that that autism because they basically they've been taught this very stereotype they've been taught that autistics can only look a certain way um and and i it's i saw i always find it very interesting because i think i even fell into this myself before even after i got my diagnosis which wasn't until i was 16 um I always thought, you know, because of the way we were taught about like spectrum, uh, I always thought of it as a lin as, and I think a lot of people still think of it as linear, and it's not linear. It's it's like I've been, you know, now I've been trying to um, get people to understand that it's not like more or less autistic it's all these different it's like a pizza graph of like all these different traits of exactly. yeah so right. yeah um right yeah i mean uh, yeah to i mean to be autistic is to have enough differences from what our society considers to be the typical um in uh, the way that we communicate in the way that we process information and the way that we move um, and the way that we experience our sensory environment. And there are so many different ways in which that can play out. Right. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, the autistic community is hugely diverse in, um, in terms of, you know, each individual's, um, needs and their presentation and their experiences right yeah exactly yeah yeah and and i feel because there are also so many different um ways that uh, autism can present and different intersecting uh identities as well um and that's i think another part that gets lost because a lot of people think of like you say autism they think of like a young white boy mm -hmm. with maybe high support needs maybe non-speaking um which of course those presentations do exist but um it's like there's it it it, it makes people like it it feeds the stigma because it's like they're thinking of one kind of autistic person and anyways it leads to like the functioning labels and everything um, but, uh, my next question for you is when did you decide to become a physical therapist and what would you say it was, um, your experience? I mean, even if you didn't have a diagnosis yet, would you say that it was your experience that motivated you? Yeah, I, um, I do think that my disability and um, my experience as relates to that very much so influenced my career path. Um, so 
when I was in college, I had been, you know, I had been interested in a variety of things around science and the science of learning how people worked. I mean, I've always found that to be um, very fascinating. And I mean, I think that's something that comes up um, not uncommonly among autistic people that, um, you know, we love studying people. We just right? want to understand <laughs> them. Yeah. Right. <laughs> You know, so I was taking classes in biology and psychology, and I came from a family in which, um, you know, there were folks in my life who had worked in higher education and who had been educators or, or who had done research and you know, I thought that something along those lines could be a good career path for me based on my interests, my temperament. Um, but what I ran into pretty quickly in college was that whenever I was talking with, um, you know, faculty about, you know, pl planning for which courses I was going to take or what are my career plans, then I was usually met with feedback along the lines of you should not um, go into research um, you probably don't want to pursue grad school in this field or that field because you are not a strong enough personality um, you're uh, I see that you're quiet in my class and you need to be um, showing that you're one of the um, you know, one of the most dynamic and engaged um, students in order for, um, you know, you to, you know, get the recommendations or qualifications, whatever it is, to go on to whatever the next thing is. And uh, in hindsight, uh, you know, this is, um, this feedback that I was receiving was all around my communication disability. Uh, you know, I have auditory processing challenges. I speak at a slower rate than average in a lot of situations because of that. I, so, you know, I sometimes have word finding issues. I um, generally have a lot of challenges in uh, spontaneous oral speech, especially in sensory complex environments. And this is why I, um, you know, in those settings appear to be quiet, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so I didn't know any of that at the time. Um, but uh, that was that was one thing that um, led me away from some things and led me to be exploring for myself, okay, uh, you know, what else, you know, like, what career path can I go down that I would qualify for? And um, I myself was needing to do some physical therapy for an injury that I had. I had some family members who had needed to do physical therapy for one thing or the other. And I recognized that this was a field in which, you know, I, I could still be learning about some of these things that were interesting to me and applying them in ways to help people, um, you know, and I... Um, 
that aligned with my values. I wanted to be doing something that was um, helpful to society. And so I gave it a go. And I did a year or so of working in a hospital as a rehabilitation aide, you know, so essentially just helping out the physical and occupational and speech therapists in a hospital with, uh, you know, kind of the little behind the scenes prep work and uh, being an extra set of hands to help out with what they were doing. Um, you know, I enjoyed it. I wound up going to physical therapy school and, um, that's how things came about. Oh, fantastic. Um, well, I mean, that's unfortunate that, um, you were told you were given that feedback about like that you they didn't think you could be in research because i'm i know that there are probably a lot of talented researchers that are not necessarily like social butterflies but um yeah it's really interesting to me because you would think um i mean uh, there's a stereotype right of the autistic um um, you know, the autistic professor, right? Um, that's also a stereotype. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah. Not to say that it's like every researcher would be quiet, but I feel like to say that you can't be a researcher because you're too quiet. It just feels like, I don't know. It just feels like a symptom of like a society that, has a lot of discomfort around people that um that aren't like typically like on the surface like super um outgoing and stuff and because i feel like and it's just the like with autistic people you connect um like at least for myself like at least like i just need time to warm up for to people so like if i and it needs to not be in a big group setting. But if I have, like, if I warm up to someone one-on-one over time, like, that can be a really, it can become a really strong connection. And I even made this, asso- and I've heard other people talk about this as well, but the association um, with autistics and cats, um, I think a lot of people, a lot of autistic people, including myself, um, are big cat people because... It's just something about, like, how cats are also, like, sensory sensitive, and they're also, like, you know, um, like, you have to, uh, you have to, like, you know, earn their, uh, relationship a little bit, like, it's, like, you, you build trust and stuff, and, um, and I feel like people want, like, a lot of times people, like, want you to they're not like willing to wait to get to know you I feel like they they make these based these very harsh judgments um on just how you present the first time they see you and I feel like that's a lot of what what they do with cats as well um so right yeah yeah agreed right yeah I mean cats uh, you know cats and um how they keep company you know um they sit quietly with you right yeah and they you know you can be um 
not necessarily doing parallel play, but you know, your cat will be right right now. Wiley is hanging out. He's looking out the window. He's watching the leaves move in the wind. He's looking for birds, and at the same time, he is, uh, in you know, indicating that he's in community with me, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, yeah, it's like. Anyways, I was just my brain is like <laughs> kind of bouncing around a little bit, um, but. Um, yeah, I was thinking a lot about like how like I can be shy when like I'll be shy with someone when I'm not I don't know them very well and then I get like it's just really unfortunate when they like cuz I see them do this with cats too. They they assume that just because you're shy that you don't like them, but it's not and it's not even like oh, like, I'm so good, so you have to earn my relationship. It's more like I need to trust them. Um, mm-hmm. Right, yeah. and also I think uh, just, a, you know, naming another piece of that that is often part of the dynamic, that autistic folks, um, you know, we... You know, we by definition communicate differently. We, you know, we have differences, um, many of us, um, if not all of us, in, you know, the, if we communicate um, with oral speech as part of our communication repertoire, then our voices, um, are going to be different in one way or another. Um, we uh, we might be very talkative. We might um, we might not be very talkative. We might um, talk at a different rhythm, or maybe with a different tone of voice. Our facial expressions might look different. Um, our body language might look different. And you know, ultimately, this is all um, just the variability um, the the human population has in sensory processing and our movement development right um that that's what all of these things ultimately wind up relating to i mean executive functioning too right i mean yeah um, yeah yeah exactly i've i've certainly felt that with um facial expressions and i think that's one of the things that um, it'll make me the most nervous in in social situations because I feel like I'm always like trying to, I'm always worried about trying to monitor how my, how I'm coming across, like how my, how people are going to perceive certain expressions and and such and it's like and it's really difficult because I don't because like that's one of the things that it's still the the hardest I think people struggle the most with understanding is that our expressions don't always match what we're feeling so like I'll have it so many times where people will I feel people misunderstand me or they think I was like trying to infer a certain thing or communicate a certain thing or taking something a certain way just because of the tone or my face or something. Um, So, yeah, that's something that I've definitely 
noticed from my experience as well. Right. And this is, um, so I just finished um, yesterday uh, presenting this weekend course that I do for physical therapists. And, you know, a big part of what I share in that course is that um, I think as physical therapists, um, our you know, we in our profession are actually really well poised um, with the background knowledge to be able to understand these differences in motor control that affect things like facial expression and body language and to help work to destigmatize those differences, right? I mean, this is, uh, uh, you know, movement diversity um, is part of human diversity, it's part of neurodiversity. Um, and there, you know, there's no one right or wrong way to have your face look while you're talking, right? Or while you're doing anything. Exactly. I know, I know for myself, uh, you know, it's actually a lot of the time, the, actually the more engaged I am in communicating with someone around a certain topic, then probably the less eye contact I'm going to be making and... Um, the more I might be um, uh, you know essentially the more engaged I am the less of my processing bandwidth I'm going to be putting towards what you were saying I'm trying to mask my facial expressions to have them appear one way or another right exactly um, exactly yeah. yeah but I that eye contact is another huge one where it's like it's so, it's, it, it drives me crazy because people, they think, they've been taught to think that more eye contact, and maybe for some people it's true, but they've been taught to assume from everybody that more eye contact means that you're like, means that you're paying attention or that there's like, some association like that they think that if i'm not making eye contact with them that i'm not that i'm gonna not understand what they say but for me it's the exact opposite it's like no if i try if i force eye contact with this person then i'm not gonna understand what they say i'm, I'm gonna like everything's gonna i'm like putting so much effort onto the eye contact because i'm forcing right. it because it's not natural, and then, and then it's like everything gets lost. Um, That's right. It, right. It takes up all of your processing bandwidth. Yeah. Um, more, more than it should, right? Exactly. Um, more than it needs to. Um, <laughs> and this is, and so this is just really important for healthcare professionals to be aware of because. You know, if you're an autistic person and you're going to an appointment with your doctor or your physical therapist or whoever, and, you know, you're not feeling good, it's like you're ill or you're um, in pain and you're trying to communicate your symptoms to the professional that you're working with, then, you know, it happens so often 
you know, I hear this all the time from other autistic people, and I know this has been my experience as well, um, being a patient, that you go in, you communicate your symptoms, and, you know, professionals will think that the way you appear does not match up with the, um, the fact that you are ill or that you're in pain and there's something about your um your communication your body language that they think doesn't match up with how someone should look when they're in pain right yeah and and people um people don't get matched with the help that they need um they get dismissed and it's a huge issue um yeah that yeah yeah, definitely. It, it definitely shows how there needs to be, like, particularly also in the medical community, uh, particularly with non-disabled um, doctors and such, that there needs to be more awareness of different styles of communication and that the fact that eye contact isn't, like, the way everyone engages and it's also like people can present like differently and it doesn't yeah there needs to be like a destigmatization of all that as well um my next question uh i have two more questions for you my next one is what are some of the most common struggles people come to you seeking help for well the Actually, the most common set of uh, concerns or problems that I am supporting people with these days are the things that can come up um, for hypermobile folks, so people who have um, hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndromes or um, another connective tissue disorder. I actually had, um, even before I recognized and had identified um, myself as being neurodivergent, um, you know, I had uh, I had been working in a practice setting where I was seeing more people with hypermobility spectrum conditions, and uh, once I, you know, had got gotten plugged into the autistic community and um, started to do some learning and some more reading, you know, it, it became. <clears throat> Uh, really interesting to me to learn that there's this huge overlap between hypermobility spectrum conditions and um, some of the more common forms of neurodivergence. Um, you know, about depending on the research that you look at, about half of autistic folks are hypermobile, at least. Um, it may be more than that. And same thing with the hypermobile um, population that about half of um, folks who have re received some sort of hypermobility spectrum condition diagnosis are indeed autistic, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this huge overlap, um, and that's not even looking at some of the other forms of neurodivergence that 
a more common um yeah like adhd among among both groups right like Mm -hmm. adhd or tourette's um so anyways um (laughs) i feel that uh, i feel actually really lucky and fortunate to have had this opportunity personally to learn about neurodivergence and to um, be doing this work around what can my profession be doing to better support neurodivergent patients because it's like that applies um, so directly to this population that I was already working with. Um, Yeah, so, you know, I'm seeing people who are managing um, pain issues, pelvic health issues, you know, sometimes I'm supporting people on managing dysautonomia um, that can be more likely when you're hypermobile. So, um, yeah, that's the majority of what I'm doing um, these days with my clinical work. Cool. Yeah. And you have, you practice in the San Francisco Bay Area, right? I do. I work at a small outpatient practice called Back to Life Physical Therapy, which is in Oakland. Um, Cool. Yeah. Okay, nice. Yeah. Um, I so the final question I have for you, I know you 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 did talk a little bit about this already, but um what are some of the main like I guess in more detail, uh the main things that need to change for the physical therapy world to become more neurodiversity affirming? Yeah. I Right, so we'd, we've touched a little bit on a couple of things, but there's a lot. Um, you know, I think the first piece of that is for our profession to recognize that it is uh, extremely common for people to um, have one form or another of neurodivergence, um, developmental neurodivergence is Especially, right? There are a lot of autistic people are out there. There are a lot of ADHD folks out there. These things are not at all uncommon, but we, in most practice settings um, outside of pediatrics, do not um, do not consider um, whether uh, any of our patients might be neurodivergent in one of these ways. Um, so just, you know, first of all, recognizing that, um, we also need to recognize, and let's see, there's going to be a little bit of background noise here in a moment, but, you know, we also need to recognize that, you know, more specifically in terms of supporting the autistic community, that autistic folks commonly face barriers to accessing healthcare. Um, you know, sensory barriers, communication barriers, um, you know, lack of, uh, you know, having the needed executive functioning um, supports in place in order to make care accessible for folks. Um, So we need, uh, there's so much research on this. um, We need clinicians to be aware of this. We also, you know, as a profession need to recognize that Autistic patients are going to have differences in sensory processing, um, in their motor development. 
and in their executive functioning, which can necessitate modifications to our typical plans of care in order to achieve the best outcomes with physical therapy. Um, we, you know, we need to understand, um, you know, and I recognize right now I'm just talking about autism and their, um, I don't want to downplay the fact that this applies to every single um, type of neurodivergent experience. Um, you know, but anyways, uh, physical therapists and all healthcare professionals need to understand the range of experiences that autistic people can often have in their lives relating to their disability and um, the stressors that can be coming up because of that um, so that we can be helping to match people with the supports that they need in order to have their needs met in their lives. I mean, um, you know, when folks are existing in environments that are not a good fit for them in terms of their social environment, in terms of their, their sensory needs, um, et cetera, then that has a very direct impact on people's health status, right? Um, yeah. And these are significant stressors. And this is, you know, this can be part of the clinical picture for a lot of people, and it's something that usually healthcare professionals do not think about. Um, healthcare professionals are not thinking about, for example, you know, having a network of mental health therapists that are in tune with these things and are using neurodiversity affirming practices and who can help to explore these issues with people, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, and there's so much more. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot for sure. I think, um, you know, I was just thinking about stimming. That's one thing that came up in my head that I think there's so much, like, from, from early on, like, at school, like, this whole... Because I think stimming is just something, like, for people that don't understand it, it makes them very uncomfortable and so like i know a lot of people from an early age at school are conditioned to not or told to not stim um and a lot of therapies like aba as well you know that um that are intentionally forcing people to not stim and stimming is a, a necessary regulation tool um for because i always stimmed and like even my family like because they didn't understand it they would be uncomfortable with it and my sister would always ask me to stop and they would just like but they didn't understand it and i didn't even understand it that it's a regulation it's like regulating hyperactivity and hypermobility and also sensory input emotional input like if i'm really stressed out about something i'll find myself stimming more and so i think stimming is like something that needs to be normalized and accepted as well for sure yeah absolutely and um also understood um 
to be functional and a tool that we can be supporting people in using um, for, um, you know, just considering, considering that as a framework, actually, for exploring what might be the most helpful to someone, um, you know, for example, in physical therapy, um, when we're helping to support people who are managing pain or maybe managing a digestive concern, because that's something that we wind up talking about yeah. people with, then, um, you know, we talk with people about um, strategies to regulate their nervous system, you know, whether that's breathing or meditation or what have you. Um, but the lens in which we're taught to think about that is a very neuronormative kind of lens. Um, you know, for a lot of neurodivergent folks, uh, spending 20 minutes concentrating on your breathing or um, in a meditation is going to feel extremely uncomfortable and um, not helpful, actually not regulating. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, but if you think about it, what is it that um, PTs are trying to teach people with these tools? They're trying to teach stims. They're trying to teach some sort of sensory activity that helps to um, regulate the person, to help them to facilitate whatever type of um, internal experience they're trying to access, right? And so, you know, something that we can be exploring with folks is, you know, actually, for example, just with movement stems, uh, then, you know, in what situations are you maybe drawn to doing certain movements and what do you notice that that helps you with? So I can give an example, you know, I might be working with someone who is having a hard time feeling out what the most comfortable position for their body is um, going to be when they're sitting, um, mm -hmm. say, sitting in a meeting, because they, you know, maybe this person is hypermobile, maybe like um, a lot of us autistic folks, they have some proprioception challenges, just kind of relating to coordination, right? And so it can be tricky to feel, um, where is the most comfortable place to sit? How do I orient my body? But I might notice for this person that when they're um, chatting with me and sitting to do that, that they are always um, bringing their fingers together to tap them, to be stimming with their hands in front of their bodies, getting that tactile input. And when they're stimming with their hands, they actually really nicely settle into a position that is efficient and comfortable for them and feels good, right? So, yeah. you know, it's like, it's so easy to just validate that, oh, hey, I noticed that, you know, when you're doing this particular activity, that's helpful for you, right, in yeah. this way. And, um, you know, stimming is functional, right? Definitely. Um, it's a tool. Yeah.
definitely it's it's huge it's a huge regulation tool it's like exactly it's not it's not even that it's like not something that needs to be um eliminated it's actually something that is helpful and it needs to be encouraged um so yeah for sure um so those are those are all the questions i have for you today but i just wanted to uh thank you once again for coming on um this was a really great episode i I feel like um we got a lot of uh it was a really good discussion and and uh yeah i'm glad i was able to have you on today well thank you again george so um so much for reaching out and for having me for this conversation i have really enjoyed um chatting with you it's always refreshing to um connect with other folks around these topics um so thank you yeah you you as well thank you i i I enjoy chatting with you as well and it's it is always great to connect with other autistic folks because we we um we see a lot of things in similar ways yeah um yeah thank thank you everyone for listening um i hope you enjoyed this episode and i'll see everybody next time